This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. It's no secret that the American healthcare system is broken, with insurance companies, hospitals, and doctors prioritizing profit over patients and vast numbers of uninsured and underinsured people doing without quality care. On this episode, Commonweal Associate Editor Regina Munch speaks with Ricardo Nguila, an internal medicine physician at Houston's Ben Taub Hospital and author of the new book, The People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine. And stick around after that for a short reflection by Associate Editor Griffin Olenek on the spiritual writing of longtime Commonweal contributor John Garvey. That's all coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hey, Regina, it's great to have you back after, I guess we should let our audience know, your maternity leave. Thanks, Dominic. It's really good to be back. So please tell us about your conversation with Ricardo Nuila. Yes. So Nuila is an accomplished writer as well as a doctor at Ben Taub, which is a public hospital in Houston that has a mission to care for the uninsured and underinsured. It's a publicly funded hospital and it's funded by county property taxes, which makes it somewhat unique among hospitals in the United States. Even the supposedly not-for-profit hospitals operate kind of according to the logic of private markets. Nuila's conviction is that this progressive model, which puts patients first, could be expanded throughout the country. We had a great, really wide-ranging conversation about his patients' experiences, the healthcare industry, how his Jesuit education has stayed with him in his career, and his own experience caring for people on their deathbed. Well, thanks, Regina, for setting that up. It sounds like an important discussion, and why don't we take a listen? Ricardo, thank you so much for talking with us on the Commonweal Podcast. Oh, th- uh, thanks for having me, Regina. I appreciate it. A lot of the patients that are treated at Bentop are either uninsured or underinsured. Could you tell us about a few of your patients? Yeah, I'll start with Stephen. Stephen was a 50-something-year-old Texan who made $75,000 a year as a restaurant manager, but opted for his company's lowest insurance plan because he just did not utilize healthcare much. He thought it was a racket. When he did get sick, when he started to find that there was a mass growing in his neck, he went to the hospital. That's when he found out that he was underinsured. Even to be in the ER, the private hospital told him he had to pay upwards of $600 just to wait for diagnosis. And then his insurance was not good enough to cover the treatment for tonsil cancer that that was diagnosed. And in the emergency room, they did CAT scan and they they said, yes, you have tonsil cancer. However, we can't do anything about it. And so a social worker came in to talk to him afterwards and say, go to the public hospital, go to Bentog. Now, that situation was a little bit different than Roxana. Roxana was in her 50s and she was an immigrant from El Salvador, where my family immigrated from. She came to Houston in the 1990s and had lived without papers inside of Houston. And just so many immigrants walked across the border at that time and immediately found work. And she even found work at Saks Fifth Avenue and had health insurance working at Saks Fifth Avenue for a while. For 20 years, she, she did different work. She even was like a caretaker for the infirmed wealthy of Houston who needed personal caretakers. 
but she didn't have health insurance when she became ill. She started to lose weight over six months, vomiting to the point where like a friend who hadn't seen her in a while, when she laid eyes on her, said, I need to take this to the hospital immediately right now because she looks so vanquished. At the private hospital where she was taken, they discovered a large tumor that wrapped around her heart and her liver. It was causing her to have heart failure, which is an emergency condition. Now, that is a really important qualification that it's an emergency condition because we have patchwork in America. There are funds that hospitals and doctors can tap into to provide health care in emergency situations. It's called emergency Medicaid. And so there was a possibility for her to have this surgery. And being in Houston, in Houston, Texas, there was actually the best heart surgeon for this type of tumor in the world that could help her. And so he did, she was transferred and she did get the operation. However, she suffered an enormous complication, one that's rare, but one that can happen for these kind of tumors when somebody's connected to cardiopulmonary bypass machine during the surgery. Basically, her circulation was shunted to her vital organs and was cut off to her extremities, to her legs and arms during the procedure. And when she awoke, she was in coma. Afterwards, she started to see that both her legs and her arms were dead. And it became to the point where they looked like charred wood and they would not heal from that. That was dry gangrene. What this story says about the American healthcare system is that the surgery put her out of an emergency condition and she could live with these dead limbs. There was no fund for the hospital or the doctors to tap into to treat these dead limbs going forward. Not there was emergency Medicaid for the tumor. So she was discharged and told, you have to figure it out. Whereas when she came to the public hospital, she got to see orthopedic surgeons. She got to see infection doctors, physical medicine doctors, internists like me, and, the, and cancer doctors too, because she, this was a cancer, this tumor that, that, that had grown inside, all trying to alleviate this condition. She did not get that opportunity after she became a chronically ill patient at the, because of her dead limb. What, in the United States in general, what leads people to be uninsured or underinsured? And how does that affect their ability to receive care? It's a great question. And I would say that it depends on where you are in the United States. And that's the problem. We have such a complex industry, I would say. It's a little bit generous to call it a system. Now, we in America pegged health insurance, the point of entry into healthcare, according to work. So whether or not you work makes a difference on if you get healthcare, if you're underinsured or if you're uninsured, because some employers are more generous than others with their insurances. What state you live in makes a difference. American healthcare is not about a system. It's about patchwork. When there are problems with people accessing it, we try to put a patch on it. And Medicaid is one of those patches. Basically in the 60s, we realized that there were two groups that really could not get healthcare by working. And that was the people who were elderly over 65. And that's what Medicare was a patch for. And that there were also people who were poor and couldn't get jobs. And so that, that became Medicaid. The Affordable Care Act 
amplified Medicaid to try to cover as many Americans. But that became because of Supreme Court decision based on each state deciding. And in Texas, for instance, Texas has decided not to expand Medicaid. So you have to be exceedingly poor in, in Texas in order to qualify for Medicaid. Of course, people who are undocumented can't really tap into any federal funds for their health care. They're explicitly prohibited. So if, you're, if you don't have documents in this country, that can affect it. It's too complex. We've gotten used to that complexity. That's the problem. This is that it's not simple. It's not that everybody's covered and now we can go and we can lower costs by doing by by covering everybody and and providing it to everybody. It's more that everybody's on their own in this country. So you talk about these kind of patches like Medicare, Medicaid, the ACA, that they all are deferential to the private healthcare industry. Exactly. What's the effect of keeping those, keeping that in industry included? And what do you think would be a better system? Yeah, I think what that does is that it, it keeps the cost high. I think private health insurance is one of the reasons why the costs of healthcare in America is exorbitant. And we spend 18 cents of every dollar on healthcare in the United States. That's more than any other industry. And that's around double in close to double what Western European nations spend. And so the costs really matter here. And we have such a high cost system that it's inaccessible to so many. And one of the reasons that is, is because we have to jump, because our system is designed with private health insurance to go through multiple different middlemen who are each profit seeking in order to get that health care, right? It's, it's like you as a patient are paying insurance, which is run by a profit-driven corporation. And that is paying for your healthcare at a hospital that is often profit-driven or behaves profit-driven like the way that many nonprofits do. And the doctor groups are often bought by corporations that are profit-driven. So you have all of these hoops that are all trying to gain profit. And that's one of the reasons why costs are so high versus when you start to look at systems that provide these services directly. In England, it is the government, the National Health Service that employs the doctors, builds the hospitals and provides these directly. So the costs are not going to have to go through multiple profit seeking entities. And that's what and that's what it boils down to. So I think to change this, we really need to really think about what are the motives for healthcare, What are our goals? And I think that the goal should be that we need to cover everybody because that's going to decrease costs for everybody. We go from a place from providing health for people and the means to build health rather than this incentive, which is like what President Nixon called it, the illogical incentive of the American healthcare system, which is we're all incentivized to do more and more for sickness rather than to prevent illness from happening. So basic healthcare for everybody. And that could be achieved in a couple of different ways. One of them is, for instance, Senator Bernie Sanders says we get rid of all private insurance, get rid of all of it. And it's there's one insurance that everybody that covers everybody. And that would reduce costs over time, because, again, you're getting rid of one of those big profit seeking entity middlemen in, in between your health care and your patient. Right now, the system that I worked at is different. It's like the, it's a little bit more like the National Health Service that I described, right? It's more like that the government has built a hospital, has 
employs the doctors and provides that directly. It's not an insurance the way that Medicare for all would be an insurance and still go to private hospitals. So those are two different ways. There is a public system that we can look at in the United States. To my mind, to my experiences, it's successful in in many regards. One of them is because I love working there. I'm a doctor who likes that I can focus on medicine there. And I don't think that money can come between, it comes between me and my patient. And I think that we need to consider those models going forward to reshape healthcare in America. One of the things I really enjoyed about your book was that you talk about these sort of bigger policy things, but you also talk about your personal experience of treating patients and how the policies affect the way you can be a doctor. And so you talk about the algorithmania that, that is dominant in, in healthcare. Could you explain what that is and how you've seen it play out? Algorithmia is, has become a part of medicine. And in, if I take a step back, it's like the care becomes the tool instead of the practice, right? So it's, it's basically there's this decision tree. Somebody comes in to, uh, complaining about chest pain and it's this decision tree to, that you bought a person on and you just follow it until it gives you to the end. And algorithmia is, okay, that's my job and that's what I have to do and that's all I'm doing. And I think that those are good tools. Please, I, I hope nobody misunderstands. I use algorithm and I feel like we need to live in a world where we get used to using algorithms for. We can see chat GPT, all of this AI is based on all these things, right? But in medicine, it's so evident that, that the tool should never be the practice because we're dealing with human beings and so many of the algorithms, they could be misapplied. They could be misdesigned because they're, they're designed by human beings. And a lot of times they don't get to the root cause of what's happening. If a person comes to the hospital and says chest pain, that could be a part of a milieu of things that's going on. And it's like, it's, you have to sift out what is the most important. And that happens through listening. That happens through observation. That happens through empathy and attention. So Texas is a red state. Houston's a blue city and a red state. Mm-hmm. It, this seems like a pretty like progressive system comparatively. How did the people of Houston come to develop this system that seems to be one of the one of the most generous, if that's true, one of the most generous in the, the country? Yeah, it's really interesting. I th- the, the, it, that's one of the places where I take hope because I feel like we are uh, like nearing a tipping point in American healthcare and that we probably will get to a point where we can maybe think about a new system. And I really hope so. Um, I know that it feels like there's a stranglehold, but if there's enough of us who feel that we're enough is enough with the corporate medicine, that maybe we can do something. And I take hope from the story of Houston, Texas in the 1960s, the way the hospital where I work today was founded was in the 1960s, there was one charity hospital to care for the people who couldn't afford healthcare, And that was called Jefferson Davis Hospital. And of, and of course, just let that punch in the gut sink in. African-Americans in the city had to go to a hospital named Jefferson Davis Hospital in order to receive care. But since it was a charity hospital and people, it, it relied on funds basically from the county and from the city who each did not want to pay for it. They were trying to dump it on the other. And so... Predictably, conditions just deteriorated and it became, it grew so bad that there was whisperings throughout the city at these rich functions of the wealthy 
saying like that the children of the babies in the wards of Jefferson Davis Hospital were crying because there was a lack of milk. There were deaths in the maternity ward, in the, in, in the in, in infant ward. So what happens is that this man who is like one of the most fascinating people I've ever read about, Jan de Hartog, who is a Nazi resistance fighter slash Dutch ship captain, also a playwright, novelist, finds himself in Houston to teach creative writing. And he's a Quaker also. And so according to his faith, he wants to volunteer. He hears these whisperings and he says, I want to go and volunteer at Jefferson Davis Hospital. He volunteers as an or he trains himself as an orderly. He sees those conditions. He writes op-eds about them in the Houston Chronicle. And it becomes a civic issue, how the poor receive health care. Now, at the time, we have to remember 1960s Houston was, this is in the middle of the Cold War, so it's just like NASA was a big deal. The Astrodome was being built, the first dome structure. So it was like the city of the future. And so in this gleaming sort of city of the future, the international headlines were about like how the poor were treated in atrocious conditions. And so it became a civic, it became something about identity for Houstonians. Are we this city that has this hospital or do we try to care for our poor? So at the end of the day, they voted in favor of this to collect property taxes to pay for the hospitals that cared for the people who could not afford health care. And that is what's grown into this public health care system. That's the seed that was planted in the 1960s. And over the next decade, it's grown. And now it's like a multi-billion dollar a year system that treats people who are undocumented if they are with chronic care, specialty care, all of these things that this is the reason why I take hope in, in it is that we can lay the seeds right now for changing health care if we really bind together democratically, because that is where this where I work. I didn't know this when I started working there. I had to like, but that's where it came from. And that's where I find hope for tomorrow's health care in America. We'll have more of Regina's conversation with Ricardo Nguila in a moment. I'm Claudia Avila-Cosnahan, Director of Mission and Partnerships at Commonweal. One thing I love about Commonweal is our spirit of curiosity. It shapes everything we do, from religion to politics to culture and the arts. Consider becoming a Commonweal associate today. Just visit commonwealmagazine.org forward slash donate. Your gift helps support everything we do, including this podcast. Now let's get back to the conversation. I want to shift gears a bit and talk about the role of faith in spirituality and medicine. I'm going to read a quote to you. Few places on earth evoke the conflict between the physical world and what exists beyond quite like the hospital bedside. Hospital beds become touchstones where patients and loved ones test and pour out their faith. Could you give us an example? How have you seen this? Oh, yeah. Well, I think I confront this, and I would say a better word is to behold this nearly on a daily basis because the patients that I see are ill, and so many of them are thinking about what could come, which is what is the afterlife and what is my role here? So, for instance, just recently, I had a patient whose faith was that he should not receive blood products. And his blood level was exceedingly low. And he also had kidney failure. 
so that he needed dialysis in order to address the symptoms that he had that came in, which is vomiting and headache, which we thought were just due to a buildup of all that waste in his body that he just can't excrete through his kidneys. He needed dialysis. But his, his blood level was so low that he could not ha- get dialysis safely. And then, in fact, it was there's a hospital policy that you have to have blood levels high enough. This faith, he said, I was raised with this faith by my parents. I have this faith. This is what's most important to me. And you all tried your best, but I have to live with this faith. And I think that could be a real conflict for a lot of doctors. But I think that if you are open to the mysteries and also what spirituality is in a person's life, what faith holds in a person's life, then you can see clearly that's what he wants. And that's, that's who he is. That's his identity. And so we tried to really look at a lot of different options that would allow him to keep hold of that, of the, that he was following the rules of his faith while trying to help him. And it was also, it was in a way beautiful that we were, it was this negotiation behind that. Like where it was, okay, we respect that you feel like that. How about this? How about this? And I feel like even that process of somebody faith being respected and doctors trying to work with it in this world of materialism, it's just really materialism as in matter. You know what I mean? That's what I meant. It was just something really nice to behold because I feel like it does make you think that this is a very interesting line that we're living, we're dealing with in medicine. This world between the spiritual and the material. You argue that Ben Taub exemplifies the right combination of people and technology that like you can have all the best tech, like the U.S. is a, a has amazing technology, medical technology and research. But if you don't have the people and the skills and the infrastructure to administer it, then you might as well not have the technology. So what interaction do you see between people and technology at Ben Taub and how can that be a model for other places in the country? I just feel like we don't have the excess and we have just enough that we can rely on people's skills and not over rely on the technology. Like the example, one of the examples I give is MRIs, right? MRI is a powerful tool for diagnosis, but it's also often not necessary and it, it should be applied in certain contexts. However, I think that the technology has an allure to it. We have three MRIs that are working and it's there's always like a wait list that even people who are coming into the hospital, you feel as a clinician, this person, I could diagnose this person better with an MRI, but you have to wait for that. That's in contrast to some of the hospitals in town who are more like nonprofits or for-profits who are more seeking how to gain profit basically. And they have a whole ton of MRIs. And if a clinician orders the MRI, they're going to get the MRI really quickly because that is a way to bring in funds, right? Well, we only have three. And what that relative scarcity does is that it makes conversations. It makes my interaction with the patient much more. I use my diagnostic skills. I mean, I use my thinking more. I ask, but it also makes it so that my conversation with the radiologist, because I can call a radiologist and say, wait, you need to put this person at the front of the line because I'm thinking that a tumor is wrapping around his spine and he might be paralyzed. 
okay, well, let's think about that. That that makes it so that there is a human to human interaction. That's people skills. And we've just gotten used to America just in so many regards, but it's very much evident in the hospital that just, you know, yielding to technology to take the role of what people can and should do. But at the same time, I say one of the things that's evident to me is that like you, you can't run a real hospital either with no MRI. I'm not saying that we need to like go back to the time pre-antibiotic times and because it's, we just need to find balance for that. And I find that the balance is helpful. There's not too much. There's not too little. It allows us to understand that people are best resources. It's always, always people are best resources and the technology is there to help people. It's not there to be the care. You mentioned your Jesuit education and the travels that you've done to, to provide healthcare in other parts of the world. What brought you to those places and how did your Jesuit education help you? I feel like my Jesuit education was, it's just my identity. It's so stamped into me. The term men for others was just really like the principal idea that I feel like the school that I went to wanted to impart onto us. But it, the Jesuit education was also about seeking ideas, seeking experiences in pursuit of that. And so I think because of that education, it propelled me, for instance, like to not just follow the track of going into medical school. I went to India and I wanted to work for a development organization. I worked for an organization that did HIV AIDS care and drug rehabilitation an amazing organization called Sahara in New Delhi. And I learned a lot about just how other parts of the world work and just how different America is, really. I also worked in Kenya doing the same. Part of that was like me trying to find anything that wasn't like American healthcare because I, I was even disillusioned by American healthcare as I was applying, just because I'd seen the experiences of my father as an OB-GYN in Houston, as an, as an obstetrician in Houston, and how beaten down he had been by insurance companies. So I was almost like, gosh, I guess it's like I'm going into medicine, but it just feels like it's going to be like a clock in, clock out, build the insurance companies, and that's what you talk about, they like profession. And I think the Jesuit education made me thirst for something more than that. I wanted to find spirituality and meaning in everything in, in, in a job that I did. And that's really like the imprint of like, I went to a Jesuit university where that continued. And I think that it also pushed it even further into seek this out in ideas, seek this out in even in experiences. And so it, I feel like it just built a standard for me, a standard of life, which is that you need to be cognizant and aware of spirituality, but also like how social justice, it, what, where is injustice found? And I, so I feel like I, it's, I attribute not all of it, then a great part of that sense of injustice to my Jesuit education. So much of what you just said is reflected in what you say about algorithmia and not mm -hmm. not engaging with a person and you talk about treating people as a set of symptoms versus a person yeah it's an age-old debate this whole idea of is the world just like matter or is there, is materialism versus vitalism or is there like a spiritual 
connections and medicine has walked that line. I knew about Jesuits even before I went to a Jesuit school because the Jesuits were so important in Salvadoran history. My father went to a Jesuit high school and it was this, the Jesuits in El Salvador saw like they could touch the injustice around them. They sat with indigenous people, poor people, and knew that this was like the product of a ruling class imposing its will upon the Jesuit sense there was to not allow what's happening in the physical world to go because there's more to than that. It's there's something spiritual. It's not just about the physical world. It's about morality. And we need to elevate above injustice. And so I saw that growing up in the conflicts of El Salvador. And it just stuck with me, like how like that is like one of the major questions of this world. And it still sticks with me. And I go back and forth because in those travels to India, in those travels to different places, people who have similar thoughts, but the name of their religion is a bit different. And so you have to reconcile that. We have a world where there are names for the religion and, and there's identities attached to those names. And, and there's differences that are carved out between one religion and another. Those Jesuits who are trying to do good for the world is like, there's people like that every, so many places. And now that was the framework that was built in me. I was raised as a Catholic Jesuit person with that sense of justice. And so that's where I can tap into and empathize with other cultures because I can feel that. I think that's an interesting contrast maybe with temptations that doctors might have toward the God complex or a like the that a patient is just a machine that broke and I fix it now. Yeah. Um, that I sense you really trying to avoid that way of looking at people. Yeah. Part of it is selfishness, I hate to say, but it's just like I, because it's an easier world for me to understand that if I am in service of this patient and I can make my boss please, then I'm okay. I'm okay. I don't have to like, like that allows the patient doctor relationship. I can move on from that. And so I don't feel the weight that some of my colleagues might feel. I have colleagues who tell me I, I've lost the meaning of what it is to be a doctor. I was just like, that doesn't happen to me because it's just, I feel like I serve that patient. And service is liberating. Obviously, there's complexities to it. I'm not trying to say that all service in all contexts. I'm just saying in this circumstance, I do see it as that they're my boss. My patient is my boss. And I serve that person. And But it's there's this sense afterwards of, oh, I'm, I did my job. I can move. I, that's all I have to worry about is that. I feel like a lot of medicine should be there. I feel a lot of doctors in their core really do want to serve somebody, you know? They really do want to serve that patient. Just that the system, the way that it's orchestrated, the, the impediments just make it so that they can't serve that person. Yeah, You talk in the book about hope and cures that, that a lot of doctors see, well, there's no cure, so there's no hope, or maybe patients see it that way. Could you say more? You know, it's like cures is so, it's such a physically based like idea. Cure means something, it was like we apply something and it's gone after that, or we do a procedure and we don't have to worry about that illness anymore. And it's just hope is 
to me more in the different realm. It's like a spiritual realm and it's a, it's complex. And like, for instance, I think what a lot of people, when we have discussions about goals of care and end of life and possibly hospice, I think that they're hearing like what can be understood is that like, we're giving up and we're going to move you to like something. And I say it's different level of attention instead of being attentive to how to cure this illness, we're attentive to what your body needs to avoid suffering in these moments. We're observant at these moments because that would be a choice that you would make to find the right balance. The way I say it is that like we're trying to find the bullseye here of like where you can still remain like present in this world and not be over sedated by these medications, but still not be like, this pain that's coming from what's causing your death is not be overriding and to take away your mind space. And so we're trying to hit the bullseye there and that requires attention. That's what we're trying to do instead of focusing on making your organs overcome that illness. And I think that it helps because it communicates to people that there's still effort there. There's still attention. There's still respect, attention, even if you are, have decided to proceed with the end of your life and do it in a certain way, there's still attention and we're still listening. So that's where why that communication is so important. That's great. Thank you very much for talking with us. Wonderful. Thank you all so much. Ricardo Nuela's book is The People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine, available now from Scribner. As Commonweal approaches its 100th anniversary in 2024, we're dedicating some time here on the podcast to talk about writers who've appeared in our pages since we were founded nearly a century ago, and who could still speak to us about where we and maybe even the world are headed. One of these was John Garvey, a beloved Commonweal contributor and columnist for more than 40 years. A former Catholic who later became an Orthodox priest, Garvey wrote numerous award-winning columns and essays that touched on everything from religion and spirituality to literature and the arts. He had a knack for accomplishing a lot with a little, a writer of tremendous economy who could nonetheless impart deep spiritual insights. An illustrative example and a line that I always return to is, truth is approached humbly, and the approach is a form of seeking rather than an insistence on certainty at every point, from his 2007 essay, Admitting Ignorance. In 2018, Commonweal established the John Garvey Writing Fellowship in his honor. Griffin Olenek was the first of those fellows, and he could say a lot more about John Garvey and what his legacy means to him. I'm Griffin Olenek, an associate editor at Commonweal and the producer of the Commonweal podcast. The thing I admire most about John Garvey is the way he was unabashedly, enthusiastically interested in everything especially topics that are usually thought to be beyond the pale of religion and spirituality. John Garvey was an intellectual, but he wrote in a clear, accessible style that I think encapsulates well what Commonweal is really about. Instead of insisting on his own brilliance or muddying the waters with half-baked distinctions and objections, Garvey's columns open things up for the reader. They're literally thought-provoking, 
in the sense that they leave you wanting to go and think about the topic more for yourself. I don't always agree with him. For instance, he hedges on the issue of women's ordination, and he offers less than full-throated support for the possibility of gay and lesbian marriage being celebrated by the church as a sacrament. But his honesty and his grasp of the spiritual stakes of difficult religious questions always helps me to know my own more clearly. Gary was also a pastor, and he had a strong sense of what really mattered in life. He didn't think money or prestige or achievement were important. Instead, he was attentive to his inner life and the shared life of his community. He nourished his soul with all kinds of things, spiritual writings of the ancient desert fathers and mothers, medieval Catholic mystics like Dante Alighieri and Julian of Norwich, as well as the novels of Philip Roth and the science fiction of Philip K. Dick. Garvey's profound interest in visual art is one I also share. In one of my favorite columns from 2005, he recounts a walk through The Gates, a site-specific installation by the artists Christo and Jean-Claude in New York Central Park. Garvey's descriptions give the reader just enough information to feel like you're walking alongside him, taking in sensory details like the pair of hawks soaring above crowds of smiling tourists in the cold winter air and the saffron-colored bolts of fabric that flap in the breeze. That's when Garvey delivers this profound insight into the nature of the work of art. Some of those who dislike the gates object that it doesn't mean anything. Neither does good music or good abstract art. But I have noticed, listening, for example, to John Cage, that his music can teach an acute and refreshed listening. When leaving the Museum of Modern Art after a couple of hours of the attention you have to bring to art, I found myself seeing the colors and forms of the city outside with new eyes. It is this reawakening of the senses that makes many forms of art important, not any message. No good art is ever propaganda, even for the most noble cause. So that's John Garvey, and what a wonderful, freeing way to think about art. It's one that helps me not only to be a better, more attentive art critic for Commonweal, but also helps me become the best version of myself, listening carefully to the world and all its complexity and contradiction, rather than simply skimming the surface of things or insisting on having the correct opinions on contested issues or the right answers to complicated questions. For me, John Garvey embodied the best of Commonweal, and I'm honored to help keep his spirit of inquiry going into our next hundred years. Only Wonder Comprehends, an anthology of John Garvey's writing for Commonweal, is available from Liturgical Press. You can also find many more of John's pieces on our website, and listen for more segments like this on the podcast as Commonweal nears its centennial year. For the Commonweal Podcast, I'm Dominic Preziosi. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.